Our scripture reading tonight is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. Romans chapter 8, 18 through 30. Hear the word of God. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us, with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. May God bless the reading of his sacred word. This evening, we're privileged to have Dr. Conrad Mbewe, a very dear friend, to bring God's word to us after we, after we pray. He served as the pastor of Kabwata Church in Lusaka, Zambia, since 1987, and is senior lecturer at African Christian University. Uh, a university that he hopes to speak at our seminary about on uh, Thursday evening. And you're welcome to come to the seminary Thursday evening. That will begin at 7 o'clock. He hopes to present to us what's going on there and how they're hoping to start up a, a Master of Arts degree for ministers as, as well. It will be an exciting evening. He's also a frequent conference speaker throughout Africa and around the world the author of uh, eight or nine books, 
including maintaining sexual purity and foundations for the flock. He's done a a great book also on the doctrine of the church. And he and his wife, Felicitas, have uh, three, uh, six children, six children. On this occasion, to bring God's word to you, I bring you greetings from uh, my church back home, as well as uh, the university that I'll be speaking about uh, two evenings from now. I have been here before and remember the time with fond memories. It's good to be back. Please do turn with me to the book of Romans where we had our earlier reading and I want to share with you from one of the greatest promises that God has given in his word to his people. You will agree with me if you have made your way through the book of Romans that it is high ground with respect to the doctrine of salvation. There are heights there, and indeed there are depths that no doubt bring to us a lot of emotion, godly emotion, when you consider what is being said in this epistle. When you get to the eighth chapter, you begin to sense that you are getting to an actual mountain top, especially the way in which this chapter begins with uh, the words, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There is a way in which that is the greatest answer that can ever be given to a soul that is anxious about the relationship with God and also about eternity. Knowing that my sins are pardoned and that they are pardoned permanently through the finished work of Christ is indeed a glorious thought. By the time we are coming to verse 28, uh, the apostle has not just been speaking in terms of assurance of eternal salvation, but he has brought it within the context of suffering. And as we will be going through this message, I will bring you back to that point again and again. But the passage we read earlier on was already speaking in terms of suffering. For instance, verse 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. So the topic of suffering is brought into the front of the stage of our minds as the Apostle Paul is drawing 
to this glorious promise. So it's not just a promise that assures us about entry into glory. It's a promise that assures us in the midst of our suffering that all will be well. If you're a Christian today, most likely you have known your share of suffering. Some of it being simply because you are here on earth. In other words, both believers and unbelievers have their seasons of suffering. But others are because you are a child of God. You are marked out by the evil one, and you are marked out by individuals who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even in the midst of that, there are therefore added sources of suffering that we go through as believers. And often that's where the tug of war takes place in our souls. That's where the trials happen as we are processing our walk towards heaven. That's where those who have not truly connected with the living God to be one with him, that's where they get unstuck and they abandon altogether their profession of faith. It's in the midst of all that that the Apostle Paul then says, and we know, verse 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And now this verse is too pregnant with Christian doctrine and with spiritual consolation for me to to exhaust what is in it in one message. And so the way we'll deal with it is, is really in a very introductory way. But I still think it's important for us to, to sense uh, within our own souls that if, if the book of Romans can be considered as something of uh, the holy place, we have entered something of the holy of holies. God is bringing us into the most inner place of true godly assurance. Can anything be greater than the thought that all things work together for good to those who are God's people? Think for a moment if you're going through a present trial that's caused you sleepless nights, that's left your pillow drenched with tears, Look at that trial in the face and imagine yourself saying that this will work out for my good. 
Perhaps you've been fired from your workplace, not for anything wrong you have done, but because of the malice of individuals. And you're asking yourself, how then do I look after my children? This working out together for my good? Well, I want us to look at this and in the end we will see not only that the answer is yes, but that you need to know this. You need to know this. And the best way to look at this verse, if we're going to do it in this uh, introductory way, is to make our way from the end of the sentence going back to the beginning. And first of all, therefore, we see those to whom this promise is true. Those to whom this promise is true. And the apostle mentions two categories referring to the same individuals. It is to them that love God. It is to them who are the called according to his purpose. Let's think about that for a moment. Because in many ways, it is two sides of the same coin. On one side, the Apostle Paul is referring to a description of believers that is subjective. It is something that you can look at in the midst of your own trials and the kind of decisions you are making, you can see whether you love the Lord or you don't. Because that's what is being tested. For instance, a person who is in the Christian religion for what they can get out of it. The moment their religion is no longer wearing silver slippers, they kick it in the face. In other words, they are not there because they love the Lord. They are in it because they love themselves full stop. And so that's part of where the trial is. It is at this subjective level. It is at this introspective level. And it's something that we must all ask ourselves. Especially when decisions are being made in the moment of trial. Isn't that what the evil one comes to mock? in the midst of the trial? It is precisely at the point of love. Especially if, in fact, in the midst of that trial, you have ended up in an unguarded moment where you've said the wrong things, you've done the wrong things, and you genuinely are repentant about that. The evil one comes in and says, 
First of all, if God loved you, he would not allow you to go through all this. But he also comes in to say, and you don't love him. Because if you did, why would you entertain such thoughts? Why? But thankfully, the Spirit of God, who has given birth to the love of God in your soul, will not allow you to turn your back on him. Ultimately, you are willing to die for him. You are willing to suffer the worst for him. In other words, you love him. Now let's admit it, that the subjectivity of this question is one that we can never answer 100%. Even at a human level, you can say to your spouse, I love you. You can say that, and you can say it really genuinely. But often in the midst of difficulties, you do ask yourself the question, do I really love my spouse? It's even greater with respect to our spiritual walk. This aspect of love. And therefore, we can say, as one says of belief, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. We can say the same. Lord, you know I love you. But where I am failing, fill me with fresh love for yourself. That's a true child of God. From the depth of one's heart, you know I love you, Lord, but help thou where I am weak. But let's go on because it's not just the subjective aspect that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the Christian. It is also that which is objective, that which is eternal. In fact, I would dare say that which is causative. In other words, it's what has caused the love that is in your soul. He says there, for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. He's going back all the way into eternity. And he is saying, God's love for you did not begin at the point of your repentance. In coming to him, in genuine repentance and faith. It did not even begin at the point when Jesus was nailed to the cross. It did not begin there. God's love for you began in eternity past. In fact, it is this second thought that he builds upon all the way to the end of the Bible reading that we had. Look at this 
with me. Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God already had you in mind in eternity. He loved you in eternity. He made you the object of his love in eternity. He foreknew you and he deliberately purposed, predetermined that in the end you would be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, you would arrive in glory, perfected by him. And he gives us the process in which this happens. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also Glorified. We've reached the end. This is the process in which God is taking all his children. And when you look at this chain, there are no loopholes in between. Everyone that is predestined is called. Everyone who is called is justified. Everyone who is justified is glorified. They are called according to his purpose. And the purpose will be accomplished. And therefore, that love that is in your soul for him is not an accident. It is a fruit of this grand design from eternity to eternity. The love is but the evidence of what God has already determined. That's the way in which the apostle here describes those who are to enjoy the benefit of this, knowing all things working for our good. So, many people will tell you, uh, and they're quite right, uh, that the way you know that God chose you from eternity is not by peeping into eternity. It is by the present work of grace in your soul. And part of that is this love. Let me ask you this evening, whatever it is that you are going through, has God ignited within your soul a love for him? It may not be perfect, but when you are honest with yourself and and like an onion, you, you, you peel 
yourself deeper and deeper and deeper in the midst of all things, do you find there a genuine love for the God who made you, who has watched over you, who has saved you through the death of his son? If so, this promise is for you. Not because you deserve it, but because he loved you from eternity and is working out that purpose in your life. Well then, what is that promise? Let's come further to the beginning of this text. And uh, this is the promise. That all things work together for good. All things work together for good. That really is the literal translation of this verse. More modern versions will say something like, in all things, God works for the good. And often it is because of an attempt to, to make it clear that this is not blind fate that is happening. That there is an active God at work behind all this. We don't need to try and engineer the text in order for us to, uh, to come up with that. Because, indeed, the, the whole of this chapter is dealing with a God who is actively dealing with the weaknesses of his people. In fact, just the previous verse puts it this way. Speaking about the Spirit of God, we are told, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God, or simply according to God. But in which sense is it according to God? It's according to what God is doing according to what God has willed to happen. And it is from that that the Apostle Paul says, and we know that his will ultimately works for our good. What he is doing is for us. So, God may not be mentioned in the text as the one who is actively at work, but he is actively at work. What makes this text, let's use the word astounding, is its comprehensiveness. All things? Remember where we started? I gave even one example. The loss of employment that drains your entire account and bills are still coming. And you ask, is this part of all things? 
The answer is yes, it is. In fact, after chapter 30, rather after verse 30, the Apostle Paul begins to attempt to challenge some things. He says, for instance, in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's challenging. If if this God is on our side, bring it on. And let's see if we will fall or we will fail. Look at verse 35, for instance. Verse 35. To give you an idea of some of the all things. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword throw all that into the all things and of course his answer is in verse 37 nay in all these things there it is again we are more than conquerors through him that loved us from all eternity So, whatever it is you're going through, bring it on. It's included in this all things. What we need to realize is the way the, the verse is phrased is not, we know that all things work for the good. That's not the way it's phrased. It is this. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That phrase, together, is all important. In which way is it important? Well, the truth is that some events that come into our lives knock us off the wrong way. We are pulled backwards by them. We feel so weak sometimes that we we don't even know how to pray, as he had put it already in the verses prior to verse 28. Sometimes our own remaining sin comes alive. And causes us to sin against God grievously. That we are left in tears. As was the case with Peter. When he denied the Lord. On that fateful evening. Paul is saying. That God has a way of taking that. And then mixing it with other events in such a way 
that when you see the final outcome, you say, praise the Lord that he allowed even that to happen. A favorite illustration that I used to use many years ago was in the days when uh, wristwatches were mechanical watches. I've lived long enough to see the transition to, you open the back of my watch right now, there's nothing moving there. But once upon a time, if you removed the back of the wristwatch, there were a number of wheels, many wheels. Some of them were moving very fast. Others, you had to be very patient to notice the movement. It's as though it's, it's just static, but it's actually moving. Other wheels are moving clockwise, while other wheels are moving anti-clockwise. But all those wheels together, you now turn your watch and you see they are working together to give your time perfectly. Your hour hand, your minute hand, your second hand are perfectly synchronized by all those different wheels. They are working together. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. That while you are going through that one trial, your mind is engrossed only with this one thing. And you are saying, this? The loss of my job? How on earth can it work out for my God? This cancer that I now have in my body. How? We are creatures of the moment. And we are creatures that concentrate on the one thing that brings pain in our lives. God is not a creature of the moment. He's an eternal being who sees all things at once. And God does not get blind-sighted by one thing. All those wheels that are turning are right in front of him. He has ordained them and they are working according to plan. And sometimes we get to know by his grace many years later what on earth God was doing. It's important for us to realize that. To, to stop judging what God is doing from where we stand. And learning to say, he knows 
what he is doing. He has promised. He's loved me from eternity all the way to eternity. The things that are happening and other things that I do not see are combining to work for my good and for the good of his people. Are you willing to close your eyes for a moment and just put your hand in God's hand and trust him? In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your tribulation, in the midst of your distress, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your famine, in the midst of your nakedness, in the midst of peril and sword, are you willing to just trust which takes us to the beginning of the sentence. Because truly speaking, for this verse to be a means of an encouragement to you, you need to go beyond doctrine into personal conviction. Beyond doctrine into personal conviction. Notice the way the verse begins. It begins with the word, and we know. And we know. And we know. In other words, the, our problem as Christians is that we lose sight of the fact that when trials come our way, God is still in control. We lose sight of that. If you are in a Bible study and all is well and our Bibles are open and we are all asked the question, is God sovereign? 100% hands up. Is he in control of all things? 100% hands up. Is he taking us as he rules history to his desired heaven? 100% hands up. Until trials come. And we are like the disciples in the boat with Jesus. Shaking him with our prayers. And asking the question, Lord, don't you care that we perish? We lose sight of the fact that he is in absolute control. Nothing's taken him by surprise. He has allowed this for your good and for his glory in its sum 
total. It is this movement from doctrine to conviction that truly matters. Let me give you an obvious example, and uh, you will understand what I mean. In a human being standing in front of you with a knife in his hands is probably what nightmares are made of. But you see, it depends on whether that human being is a thief or a surgeon. So what of a difference? If he's a thief, well, of course. The first thought in your mind is, how on earth can I escape from this person? You scream for help in every direction. But if he's a surgeon and he's in his office and he's explaining to you what he will do to you tomorrow, you know that it's for your good. You know. You even see he's got all these different kinds of knives with which he cuts people. But you know that this is for my good. He's a surgeon. That's what he does for his living. And therefore, you are at peace. You, at the end of the whole process, and the nurses have wheeled you back into your ward, and the, the painkiller is beginning to wear off. Yes. You experience pain. It is real pain. But there's hope in you. And you're saying to yourself, hopefully in the next day or two, this will be over. There's hope in you. Why? Because it was a surgeon who was dealing with you. Allow me to add. The surgeon even comes to visit you. The very person who cut you up and says, how are you feeling? You don't call him names. You don't call fire from heaven over his head. No. You, you actually talk to him like a gentleman or a lady. The very person who cut you up. And you have the pain. But you still say to him, well, I'm in pain now. And then he continues to assure you that the operation was successful. We are heading in the right direction. What makes the difference between despair and hope? I'll tell you what it is. It's what you know. It's what you know about that person that being holding the knife in his hands. Let me ask, is this what you know? 
that your heavenly father is in charge of all history? Absolutely. That is in charge of the minutest details of your life. Of the life of your family. That not a hair from your head drops to the ground without your heavenly father allowing. That even the trial that has come into your life has been ordained by a hand of love, the hand of your heavenly father. Do you know this? In other words, is it a, a, a real conviction in your soul? Because it is only in knowing that that we become more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, we can speak with conviction and genuine love for the Lord because we know. Was Paul puts it towards the end of this chapter, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, and so on. Just one that first phrase, I am persuaded. Are you going through a real trial in life at the moment? Let's use another phrase. Has all hell broken loose upon your soul? In the midst of that flood that is beating against your little breast, When you close your eyes, are you able to say, I know that in all things, including this, all things are working together for my good. For my good. We all need that peace in this real life. We all need it. It grows out of genuine biblical conviction, rather doctrine, but it must be a conviction. May God help each one of us to, to have this conviction that finally dries tears, that finally changes despairing looks into looks of genuine hope that finally blows away fear from our hearts and our faces as trust and love for God takes over because we know he has loved us with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God, what shall we say to all this? Thank you 
Thank you for the privilege, the exceedingly rich privilege that we have as your children. That not only the positives, but even humanly speaking, the negatives have been ordained by you factored into the equation of our lives to be a blessing to us and ultimately for your glory. Oh God, help us to fix our attention not on what is seen, which is temporary, but also and even more on that which is not seen, which is eternal. The God who rules all things for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.